You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We, last week, were um, continuing through our um, study in Genesis and uh, coming to Genesis chapter 23, seeing the uh, the death and the burial of Sarah. We decided to uh, approach that chapter from the perspective of examining our own uh, life and burial and death and Uh, So we looked last week from our summary sentence, the time of death when the natural inclination is to mourn as the world mourns should be the time of our greatest demonstration of faith for the recipient of God's promises has a hope beyond the grave. And so we saw Sarah's death um, and we see her death in light of the fact that she doesn't receive all of the promises, right? Book of Hebrews says that some of the people died not having received all the promises, um, that we're still waiting for Christ to come back and to, um, uh, to be able to fulfill all the promises that have been given to the believer. And so Sarah dies, and um, it's really our first interaction with death in the book of Genesis um, on an individual basis. Not that people haven't died. We've seen people die. We've seen Adam die. Um, we've seen people perish in the flood. We've seen the first murder uh, with Cain uh, taking the life of Abel. So it in no way is the first death, but it is the first funeral that we encounter in Genesis. And I believe it sets a pattern for how we should approach these type of issues as believers. And so we saw last week that our time of death should be a great demonstration of faith. Uh, and we looked specifically at how Abram was, or Abraham was faithful to weep over the loss of his wife, right? That he doesn't set this example that just because we're a believer and we know that we'll see that individual again one day, it removes any need to grieve here on this earth. Okay, so lest we think that it's unchristian to cry in the face of death, Abraham removes that for us. He demonstrates that it's right and it's appropriate to be grieved over death and to mourn over death. But he also sets the example that as a believer, we don't despair in the face of death. We see him pick himself up. We see him tend to the funeral arrangements. We see him be very intentional with how he plans to bury his wife. Um, And so while he grieves, he does not allow death to drive him to the point of despair. That he's lost his wife, but he also loses her in the face of hope. Um, That he believes that there is more to come for both he and his wife in the future. And so he sets a great example for us about mourning, uh, but also not despairing. And then we look specifically at her burial and how Abraham desired to bury Sarah in the promised land. He doesn't take her back home where her family is. He intentionally buries her in a land that is yet to be his own. Um, And he goes through a purchasing process, a bargaining process where he obtains land, the first owned land by the Jewish people in the promised land. And Abraham sets up shop basically for her and says, this is where I want my ancestors to come back to, uh, to memorialize Sarah, to come back and to mourn her, to remember her. Um, this is where they, they need to come. They need to come to the promised land because this land has been given to us. And so um, ultimately it, it caused us to step back and hopefully uh, examine our own plans for death and how in our death and how we choose to have ourselves buried, how will we point other people to Christ in how we handle those matters? Uh, where will we choose to have our bodies laid to rest? And from a Christian perspective, realizing that God is not done with our bodies, that there is a great future for our bodies. Um, as the New Testament communicates, that our bodies will be raised to life. They will be transformed. They will no longer deal with death. And so a lot of hope surrounding our bodies. And so I believe that we should give great care to how we handle them in death. And so I um, challenged you last week to, to leave, hopefully, with a plan of action 
to think through how you will prepare for your own death, how you'll plan to point others to the eternal hope you possess through the way you were buried. Before leaving this chapter, I felt it appropriate for us to continue thinking through the hope of the believer in the midst of death and uh, allowed us to have some conversation, hopefully that was fruitful in our C groups this past week regarding the book of life. Um, And the reason for that is a passage in Luke chapter 10. The reason that I believe this is uh, a relevant topic to attach to Genesis chapter 23 is because we do see Abraham not despairing in the midst of death. And we see hope in the New Testament for why that's the case. And so I wanted to draw our attention to that in our C groups. And then once again this morning before we leave Genesis 23 and move into the marriage of Isaac to Rebekah. So in Luke chapter 10 verse 20, the context being uh, that the, uh, the followers of Jesus have been sent out. Um, and they've seen great results from uh, the power that the Holy Spirit has brought upon them. Um, and so they come back rejoicing. And, and Jesus communicates something in verse 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, meaning do not rejoice in the great ministerial success that you're seeing, that the spirits are subjected to you, but instead rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Uh, Jesus causes his disciples to reflect on something very important, a point of rejoicing, a foundation for rejoicing. And that's going to help begin our discussion this morning and so for our summary sentence which is the only blank in your notes and then again you can fill in around that per jesus so this isn't my opinion this is jesus's thoughts on this per jesus one of our greatest joys should be the security we experience in knowing that our names are written in heaven which assures our future entrance into the city of god where we experience eternal life with him we're going to unpack that sentence all day long Um, But to begin that discussion, I wanted us to begin in Luke chapter 10 because Jesus points his followers to this ground for rejoicing, that they are to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. And so per him, one of our greatest joys should be the security that we experience in knowing that our names are written in heaven. And as we're going to see today, this assures our future entrance into the city of God where we experience eternal life with him. The challenge that I gave you in your C-group discussions this past week was to examine key passages regarding the book of life. And I hope that you were able to go and to pull some of those so that even if your C-group leader didn't mention them, hopefully you were able to, to bring those up in your discussion. Key passages on the book of life. What does it mean to have our names written in heaven? And why does Jesus refer to this as a point of rejoicing? Um, How should we understand his teachings and his understandings on this? How should we build a theology regarding what the book of life is? Because the book of life is mentioned in both the, uh, especially in the New Testament, and there may be references to it in the Old Testament. Um, And so how do we handle this understanding? Because as I said, Jesus makes this a point of rejoicing. So this isn't a topic that we explore and discuss just because we like to explore things that are difficult to understand. Right. This isn't just us picking a topic that scripture uh, maybe isn't completely clear about and us just trying to dissect it and study it for the point of knowing more. Um, My belief is that we should seek to understand this. We should labor to understand this because Jesus says our understanding of it should lead to great rejoicing more so than anything else we experience here on this earth. Um, So I don't think it's even something that we should resolve to say, yeah, you know what? I don't understand the book of life. I don't understand how our names are written or if our names can be erased. 
I'll just ask Jesus when we get there in heaven. No, I think we miss it because Jesus says we should be rejoicing over it now. Meaning there's enough for us to understand that will lead to great rejoicing. And then maybe some of the mystery that still lingers can be answered in the future when we dwell with him. But in the meantime, there should be enough content there available to us that would lead to a believer rejoicing in the here and now. And I hope to be able to share uh, and show you some of those things today. So we're going to look at some key passages uh, regarding the book of life. And what I hope to do is to start kind of from the the beginnings in the Old Testament uh, where there may be some references to this and then hopefully build um, understanding that you know, God uh, is progressively revealing his plan, right? So we would say in the Old Testament, God began to reveal himself to mankind. And then I think we would all agree that in the New Testament, people in the New Testament had a more clear picture of who God is, his character and his plans, right? We rejoice in the New Testament because there were mysteries in the Old Testament that they did not understand that have been further revealed and clarified in the New Testament. And I think this is one of those things that that the theology of the book of life is uh, being progressively revealed through Scripture. How many of you, your group, talked about Exodus chapter 32 in your discussion? Okay. Exodus chapter 32. And and what I want to do is um, initially read the passage, share with you some things that sets the context for the passage. Then I want to tell you some things that we know and don't know based on this passage. And then I want to kind of summarize all those thoughts about that passage. That's to be the format that we're going to follow today. That's why it was just almost impossible to try to track that in a half sheet page of notes. And so that's why I'm just encouraging you to write down as much as you can, as much as you want. And then feel free to ask me to send you the rest. So Exodus chapter 32, verse 33, why it's relevant to our discussion. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to these different passages in verse 33, it says, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, but now go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Okay. So backing up just a little bit, Moses is interacting with God. Um, And it says Moses comes to God and and he returns to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And that's where we get the answer from the Lord. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Some thoughts on this passage. First of all, the context of the passage. All right. What's the great sin that's, that's been enacted here by the children of Israel? Does anybody know? Yep, the idolatry, the golden calf. Okay, so God has led them out of Egypt. He's led them to Mount Sinai. He's preparing to give them the book of the law. Um, in the midst of God communing with Moses and, and, and giving him these things, the children of Israel grow restless, right? They're, they're tired of waiting on God's revelation, tired of waiting for Moses to come back down. They uh, they invoke Aaron to create a golden calf. So they collect gold and, and everything, melt it down, and he constructs this calf, and they're worshiping. And God draws attention to Moses and says, while you're up here doing this, I'm not confined to this location. I'm also down in the camp in the midst of the people, and they are falsely worshiping another god. They have given credit to an idol, to an object for bringing them out of Egypt when I am the one that rescued them. 
And his, his anger is kindled against the people, the Bible says. Um, and he, and he even uh, suggests to Moses, I, I, I could wipe these people out and just start over with you. The promises would still be in place. Moses is a descendant of Abraham, and so nothing would be in jeopardy there. And so God's saying, because of this great sin, um, the thought is there that I could just wipe these people out and start over with you, Moses. And Moses says, uh, he kind of appeals to God and, 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 and um, prays that God would not do such an activity. Um, and the Bible says that God relents from that. Moses goes down, and you almost see a different picture of Moses once he gets down in the camp, and all of a sudden his anger is kindled against the people. You know, up there, he's getting a report, but when you're kind of in it, sometimes it, it means a little bit more to you. Moses comes down, and he's just furious over what the people are doing. It says he takes the idol, destroys it, and, and doesn't just destroy it, but really goes intentional about melting it down and, and grinding it into powder and making people drink it. And then he, he solicits some people to, to come and help him. And then 3,000 people are slain with the sword. And then Moses comes back and says, you guys have sinned a great sin, meaning that not everybody that participated was killed. He's still talking to people that are alive that have committed this great sin. And he says, I'm going to go back to God and see if I can atone for this to see if, if, if this can be fixed. And so that's the context. He comes back. He comes back to God and says, God, I'm asking you to forgive them. And if you won't forgive them, then I'm suggesting that you just blot me out of your book. Okay? So the context, the context of this passage is the continued earthly existence of the Israelite people. I think we have to admit that. Uh, nowhere in the passage is it suggested that, that Moses is concerned about their eternal condition. Right? God is talking about killing them. He says, Moses... I'm going to kill them, and we're going to start over with the new earthly people that come from you. Moses says, don't do that. That Your name will be tarnished. Everybody will say, how could he have led them out of Egypt and then killed them in the wilderness? Moses goes down, and he seems to be very concerned about their, their continued earthly existence as well. And then he comes back and appeals to God, forgive them. Forgive them for this great sin. So the context seems to be the continued earthly existence of the Israelite people. Number two, Moses requests to be omitted from God's book if he does not forgive the people's sins. Now, I think it's important to note here that Moses, now, just, just taking the text at face value, Moses does not request that the children of Israel's names not be blotted out of God's book, right? He doesn't say, God, don't blot their names out. But if you're going to do that, go ahead and blot mine out as well, right? He says, forgive them of their sins, and if you're not going to forgive them of their sins, then blot me out of your book. So Moses requests to be omitted from God's book if he does not forgive the people's sins. And number three, I think it's important to note, up to this point in God's revealed word, the concept of blotting out referred to physical death upon the earth. Give you some context for this. In Genesis chapter 6. Uh, verse 7. So the Lord said. I will blot out man whom I have created. From the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things. And birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Alright so God's talking about blotting people out. But he's talking about blotting them out from the earth. That he's going to bring punishment upon them. Because of their sin. Uh, Genesis 7, 4. Again, this is, these are the words that Moses is writing, right? He writes the book of Genesis. 
Uh, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Genesis seven twenty three. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. All right, so there's some context there as far as how the word is used in Genesis. If we skip ahead to the book of Exodus where this passage is found, if we start with Exodus 17, 14, which uh, chronologically comes before this, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. All right, so God talking about the, the fate of the Amalekites for things that they had done to Israel. Um, Exodus twenty three twenty three. so just a couple of chapters ahead, continuing with this theme of blotting out. 23, verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Okay? All those instances, blotting out refers to the earthly existence. I think Moses is primarily concerned with the continued earthly existence of the Israelites here. He says, God, forgive them. I understand you want to start over. I understand you want to wipe them out, but, but don't. I'm appealing to you as an intermediary, one who serves as a pre-example of Christ who would ultimately be the intercessor for us that would stand in place uh, between God's wrath and us. Um, Moses is, is incapable of taking upon their sins, right? Um, and we'll see that here. So that's kind of the context of the passage. And let me tell you some things I think we do know and don't know from this passage, okay? Uh, first of all, we do not know if God intends to blot Israel out of his book, Okay? Moses says, if you don't forgive them, blot me out of your book. But there's nothing in the text that tells us for certain that God intends to blot other people's names out of the book. Okay? Um, secondly, God controls who is in the book more than us. Right? Moses is not allowed to opt out of this book that's being referenced here. And we can't bargain to have others included in it. Right? Moses says... If you're not going to do this, God, then just write me out of the book. And God responds and says, that's not how it works. You don't get to tell me to blot yourself out of the book. Um, I'm in control of that. And he goes on to say, the one who sins, I will blot out of my book. Okay? Um, so some things that we don't know. We don't know if God intends to blot Israel out of his book. What we do know is that God controls who is in the book more than us. We don't get to take our names off the list if we're on the list. Another thing that we know there is some activity that could possibly get you blotted out of God's book. All right? God does reference this, right? He responds. So we can't dismiss this. There is things that can be done, the things that can be done that um, would get you blotted out. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So there's some type of activity that could possibly get you blotted out of God's book. But again, a thing that we don't know, we do not know which book is being discussed here. There's no reference to what book this is. Now, in studying and in reading some things, there's 
suggestions about trying to specify which book this is. Uh, I know John MacArthur suggested and believed that maybe there was a list of people that were making up Israel, and so essentially to blot them out, to kill them, would to blot, be to blot them off that list. Okay, um, I think it's difficult to impose upon this passage something that's not clearly revealed to us here. I think we have to walk away from this passage saying, I don't know what book's being talked about here. Um, and I'm going to tell you, kind of as a prequel, when we get into the book of Revelation here in, in shortly, there are other books than just the book of life. All right? John reveals to us that on the day of judgment, books are opened and the book of life is opened. Okay? So it is something that we should understand. There is more than one book. Okay? There's more than one book that God has recordings in. Okay? So, God suggests that there is some type of activity that could get you blotted out of a book, some type of sinning against him. But what we don't know from this passage is which book is being discussed. And then lastly, we don't know specifically what activity gets you blotted out. Right? He says, the one who sins against me, his name I'll blot out. But we're not told specifically what type of sin that looks like. Because if you continue on in Exodus 32, what does God do to the people? It doesn't say that God goes on to blot their names out of the book of life. Instead, it goes on to say that he sent a plague upon the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So we're kind of left walking away from this passage saying, all right, we've been introduced to some concepts, but we haven't really been given a whole lot to hang our hat on. Okay, what we do know is that Moses was very concerned about the earthly existence of Israel at this point. So for John MacArthur to suggest that this really ties into them being blotted out of a list of the living, what some people want to label the book of the living, which is referenced again, I believe, in Psalm 69, that may be the case. I'm not going to press upon this passage, though, too strongly that this is a specific book. I will entertain the idea that it's not the book of life because there are other books that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Okay, so we walk away from this passage knowing a couple of things that God controls who is in the book because he tells Moses, you don't get to opt out. You don't get to trade places with anybody. Okay, Um, we walk away saying, all right, there's this difficult part that says God will blot people out for certain activity of some book because we also walk away saying we don't know what book this is. We don't know what actually gets you blotted out. And lastly, we don't know if he intended to blot Israel out. Okay. Because Moses isn't asking for them not to be blotted out. He's saying, forgive them. Essentially, I believe, let them continue to live here on this earth. And if not, blot me out of the book. Okay? So that's kind of where we're at with Exodus 32. And again, I'm going to give you some time for questions at the end. Because I understand that my, um, my communication of this may leave some holes for you. Summary. God never says in this passage he intends to blot anyone out. Instead, Moses requests that God forgive the people or blot him out. God responds by saying that the only way Moses could be blotted out would be due to some activity in his life, an activity that is not mentioned. What's clear is that you can't opt out of the book yourself. What's not clear is which book is being discussed and how one could send themselves out of the book. Sin, not send. Okay? There's some clarity there. There's some some, uh, mystery that we're left with in Exodus 32. Okay, but as I shared with you, I think as we move forward, things that maybe are mysterious in the past become a little bit more clear as God further reveals. Okay, Luke chapter 10, verse 20. All right, so we skip ahead to Luke 10, 20. 
This is a passage that we've already read and looked at. A passage where Jesus is telling his disciples to rejoice about their names being written in heaven. Okay, so setting the context again. Any earthly feat accomplished through God's power in us should never usurp the joy we experience in knowing that our eternal existence rests in him knowing us in heaven. Let me say that again. Any earthly feat accomplished through God's power in us here, anything that God does in us and through us here, should, we should never rejoice in that in such a way that it usurps the joy we experience in knowing that our eternal existence rests in him knowing us in heaven. Jesus says, don't over rejoice in what you've just seen with these uh, spirits yielding to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. All right. Uh, what do we know from this passage? First of all, having your name written in heaven is a point for rejoicing. Right. So if we're believers, our names are written in heaven and it's a point of rejoicing for us. Jesus says that he tells his followers, you should be rejoicing over this truth that you are known in heaven, that you're known by name in heaven. Okay, your names are written there. We do not know where our names are specifically written in this passage, though, right? We don't want to press this too forward and say that this is definitely the book of life because it's not told to us here. Okay, so we do walk away from this passage saying, I don't know where my name's written in heaven. I just know that my name is written in heaven, maybe in a book, maybe somewhere else. Something else that we know is that the context seems to indicate that others do not have their names written in heaven. If you go back and read uh, the rest of chapter 10, there's a lot of uh, condemnation and judgment being applied to people that are not responding to Jesus's teachings. Okay, so the, the context seems to indicate that others do not have their names written in heaven. Okay, because there, there is a belief that, that maybe everybody starts off with their name written in heaven, and then God proceeds to blot people out as they reject him or as they commit a substantial amount of sins. Okay, but what seems to be communicated here is that there are people whose names aren't written in heaven and there are people that do have their names written in heaven and those people should be rejoicing okay this passage is a lot shorter so not as much discussion on it but summarizing it one of our greatest points of rejoicing as a christian is being known by god himself okay um which has kind of been the the point that i want you to leave with today if you leave with nothing else is that the Christian rejoices because he's known by God in heaven and his name is written there. Okay, so as Sarah approached death, as Abraham approached death, as we approach death, we approach it with hope and security, knowing that God knows us. Okay, I was even thinking this week, um, for whatever reason, AJ was, we were driving to, to watch Mary Poppins Friday night and, and all of a sudden, AJ just starts asking all these questions about death. Um, when is mommy going to die? When are you going to die? When is Abram going to die? When am I going to die? And so I'm working through this and I'm like, all right, if you want to have this conversation then I'm going to trust you can handle it and just started really talking to him about what it means to die and, um, when we die and how God's in control of our lives and, and what happens after our death. And he's asking, well, what is it? Who comes back? And so I'm telling him who comes back from the dead and, and how that's a good thing. And so just really went with it. But as I'm talking to him, I start to think about my own death in a way that's that's really making me think because I can talk about dying in this context, but when you're talking to your son and you're talking about leaving him potentially one day on this earth and not being here, 
it really makes you start to try to reconcile some things that you say you believe with what you really believe. And, um, you know, I was thankful in driving uh, at that time to know that my name's written in heaven. And there, there will be a time when I, pros- I probably exit this earth. If Jesus doesn't come back, then it'll certainly be the case. Um, and and that, that, that has the potential to be a very fearful thing. Um, it's one thing to die suddenly. You don't have time to think about it. Um, but to, to be at a point in life where you're older and you're advanced in years and your, your body's breaking down and you know it's breaking down and you know your time is short, then your mind is tempted to wander and to question, um, is this going to turn out the way that I believe it's going to turn out? You know, and Jesus says, rejoice over the fact that your name is written in heaven. Okay, and that's why I believe this is an important study because Jesus says this should be a point of rejoicing. All right. We come to another short passage that I think gives us some indications about how to understand the book of life in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. This will actually be the first verse that we look at that references the book of life. All right, Philippians chapter 4, we'll start in verse 2. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sentites to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Okay, progressively revealing this. Now we come to a clear indication of what book we're talking about. Okay, the context for this passage, Paul is addressing women who seem to be at odds with each other. Okay, I know this because I've studied this passage. And for some of you, you were present in youth group when we went through Philippians. This lady, Yodia, and this lady, Sintite, are at odds with each other in the way that we think of people being at odds in a good old Southern Baptist church sometimes, right? Um, we've all probably come from a previous context where there was disagreement and there was frustration and there were issues that had to be worked out by church leadership. This church in Philippi, no different. You got two ladies who are at odds for whatever reason, have different opinions about how something should be playing out and they're in disagreement and it's causing a break in fellowship. Okay. It's a serious detriment to the church because some of you've been in churches where, you know, this hinders the gospel going forth. When the name of a church tarnishes Jesus because of how it acts inside the walls. Because that, that all the time gets out into the community. And the community looks at it and says, why would I ever want to go there? They act no different than, than we do out here. Okay, so Paul is addressing this and saying, we got to get this cleaned up. This two, these two ladies have got to come back together. Okay, um, so the context, Paul is addressing women who seem to be at odds with each other. And Paul considers the women who are in disagreement to be fellow Christians, okay? Paul does not enter in this idea that these are two women who are unbelievers that need to be kicked out of the church, okay? He's not questioning the validity of their faith. He references them as women who he has worked closely enough with that he can confidently say these are women who have their names written in the book of life. Okay, so we're talking about Christians here who are sinning. Christians who are at odds with each other and not individual little quick sins that they are turning and confessing and repenting from. This is a a continuous sin, okay? Kind of a habitual thing that is carrying it out that needs to be fixed, okay? The sun has come up and come down on this, all right? This isn't a a one-time thing. This is a thing that is festering that needs to be fixed, okay? Some things we know from this passage. First of all, the book mentioned is the book of life. Okay, so we are now talking about the book of life. Paul makes that clear to us. Secondly, regular church members have their names written in the book of life, which is great for a lot of us here, right? 
It's not just for the elite. It's not just for the people in Hebrews 11, the, the Hall of Faith members. It's not just for church leadership. You got some average Joes here in the pews that are included in the book of life. Okay, that's a point of rejoicing for everybody here because God is revealing to us it's not just the disciples, it's not just the followers in Luke 10 that are manipulating demons and, and putting things away and, and, and doing some big stuff that have their names written in heaven. Your average ladies that are, that are at odds with each other in the church that, that follow Jesus but are still a work in progress, Paul says, their names are written in the book of life. That should be a point of rejoicing. Regular church members are included in this roll call. Something we don't know is we do not know what activity these ladies are engaged in specifically. But we do know their activity, uh, their activity is something that needs to be addressed by the apostle. But it doesn't seem to put their names in jeopardy of being blotted out. Okay, so things we don't know. We don't know what they're doing specifically. What we do know is that it's big enough for the Apostle Paul to get involved in. There, there are things that happen in our church, sins that happen, sins that you engage in, that are not deemed elder-worthy or leadership-worthy for us to swoop in and say, we got to get this fixed, right? There are things that we trust in your accountability groups are getting worked out, and you're fighting, and you're faithfully overcoming some of these things. There are even some things that continue in your life that, that we would just deem as a work in progress. You know, God is working in that person. We're going to trust that he's going to keep working. It's not a sit-down elder meeting. You've got to stop doing this. Now, there are some activities in our church where it's gotten to that point where the elders have had to sit down and say, you have got to stop doing this for the sake of this body and the health of this body. Whatever these ladies are engaged in, it's, it's been elevated beyond, eh, they're a work in progress. Eh, their accountability is going to handle it. The Apostle Paul, the great church planter, has swooped in in a letter and said, these two ladies got to get this figured out. I say that to tell you this isn't a minor sin. This is a big deal sin, okay? The encouragement that he offers is that we should work with these ladies because their names are written in the book of life. And it would have been a very appropriate place to reach back into time where Moses was talking with God and for Paul to say, remember what God said to Moses. If you sin against him, he'll blot your name out. So Yodia, Sintite, you better get this figured out or your names will no longer be written in the book of life. Okay, that's not mentioned. Instead, he refers to them as being written in the book of life and tells them to get it worked out because their names are written in the book of life. Summarizing it. Not all sinning against God results in your name being blotted out of a book. All right. While God suggested in Exodus that there was some activity that would cause someone to be blotted out of the book. Again, we didn't know which book that was talking about. What we do know here is that not all sinning against God results in your name being blotted out of a book. Instead, the fact that our names are written in the book of life necessitates that we pursue unity with others, especially those who, too, have their names written in the book of life. That seems to be the thrust of the passage. It doesn't seem to be that these ladies names are hanging in the balance Will they continue to be written in the book of life moving forward? No. He says, you two, get, you two ladies are at, are at odds, and I'm calling everybody to rally around them to get this fixed. These ladies are Christians. Their names are written in the book of life. Let's be unified, which is really a theme of the whole book of Philippians. Be unified. Be unified for the sake of the gospel. There's no indication here that their names moving forward are in jeopardy. 
Instead, Paul uses the book of life here as a means of encouragement. Help these ladies because they're true Christians. Their names are in the book of life. Come to their aid is kind of the summary message there from Paul. Okay? And now we get into some of the good stuff in the book of Revelation, where we really start to deal with the book of life, right? Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. This is probably the other passage that people come to to support the idea of names being blotted out of a book. Exodus 32. God, if you won't forgive them, blot my name out of your book. God says, you don't get to make that option. You don't get to make that choice. Whoever sins against me, their name I'll blot out. That's not happening for you, Moses. All right. Then we come to Revelation chapter 3. The letter to the Sardis church. And... Verse 5 says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, let me give you some context for Revelation chapter 3. First of all, the letter is written to a church that is most likely made up of true believers along with false believers. I don't know if you've ever been to a church that had zero unbelievers in it, but if you have, I don't know why you left it, right? What a, what a perfect scenario for the church doors to only be opened and including those that are believers. The membership roles are only believers. That, that rarely happens, if ever, because there are plenty of people that profess Jesus that are not true followers of Jesus. Jesus had his own followers that professed to be followers of him that were working off on the side to do other things. So... I don't know that any pastor could claim to be better than Jesus in saying that everybody that follows our church is a true believer. All right. As an elder here, I, I admit there are most likely people that need to hear the gospel in a way that it's the first time they've heard it because they still need to be saved. All right. We can hear people's testimonies. We can believe as confidently as possible that somebody is a believer. But at the end of the day, we don't know people's hearts. And it's, uh, it, it's a regular occurrence where people that have been in the church for long periods of time that have told themselves and told others they're Christians get saved all the time, right? He's writing a letter to people that are Christians and non-Christians. It's like any other church, okay? And there's a call to repentance that's placed upon this church as well. The call of repentance is issued to both. Both the believers and the false believers get the same message to repent. And you know who repents? The true believers. The true believer hears the call to repentance and repents. The false believer doesn't. The false believer continues to go wayward and to wander. Some things that we know from this passage. The one who conquers, Jesus says. And I looked up this word in the Greek. The Greek word, the idea here for conquer is to, means to hold fast to their faith against temptation and persecution. It's a victory over unbelief. It's someone who remains faithful, who conquers temptation and tribulation that would cause one to stray. Right? The one who conquers will never have their name blotted out of the book of life. That's one thing that we know for sure here. Another thing that I think we know for sure is that not all professing Christians endure to the end, right? I hope you agree with that because I know people that didn't. I know people that have professed and have not continued. They didn't endure to the end. Okay? The suggestion here is that not all that profess will endure to the end. 
something that we don't know is we do not know if there are some who do not conquer that will have their names blotted out. That is not clearly told to us here. Let me say that again. We do not know if there are some who do not conquer that will have their names blotted out. Okay? What is told to us is that if you conquer, your name will never be blotted out. We are not told that if you don't conquer, that your name will be. That would be an assumption to the text that some people will make and will confidently make. I'm not willing to make that assumption because I don't know that it's necessary for us to see that in this passage. The hope and the encouragement is is that if you conquer, you'll never have your name blotted out. And I'm going to share with you later why that is still an encouragement if you believe, like me, that your name can't be blotted out. Okay, I believe your name can't be blotted out of the book of life. Okay, I believe that whatever Moses and God were talking about was either a different book or was a suggestion, the idea of sinning, the idea of, of not conquering, um, that, that was not possible for Moses. Okay, I'm going to get into that more in a minute. But I don't think that we have to press this passage to say that if you don't conquer, your name is blotted out. Okay, and I'm going to share with you more outside of this passage why I believe that. But we're, kind of, we're trying to stick to what each passage says in and of itself. Okay, so Revelation 3, 5, the one who conquers will never have his name blotted out. Not all professing Christians endure to the end. We don't know if the ones that don't make it to the end have their names blotted out. We're not sure if they're even in the book of life to begin with. Okay? That brings us to two other passages in Revelation. Let me give you the summary for this. As believers, we have the responsibility to repent of known sins while persevering in our faith. Trusting that in our sanctification and perseverance through God's power, our names are secure in the book of life. Let me say that again. As believers, we have the responsibility to repent of known sins while persevering in our faith. All right, so we're we're persevering in our faith. We still fall short. We repent of those sins. We trust in our sanctification and in our perseverance through God's power that our names are secure in the book of life. That is the hope offered here, is that the believer who conquers never has their name blotted out of the book of life. Okay? So as a believer who is seeking to conquer, who is seeking to persevere, and let's be honest, that's always the description of a Christian. Nowhere in the New Testament do we have pictures of Christians who don't conquer. Right? They're always referred to as unbelievers. And we're going to see that more as we look at uh, some other passages. They're never viewed as Christians if they don't conquer. Christians are always mandated to be people that persevere to the end. This passage is just mirroring what the rest of the New Testament teaches. True Christians persevere. True Christians never have their names blotted out of the book of life. All right? Revelation 13, 5 through 10. And Revelation 17, 8 through 14. Revelation 13, verse 5. Make sure we're getting all this information. I got two pages of notes here. I don't want to skip over anything that would help clarify a point for you. Um, I think we're good so far. All right. Revelation chapter 13, verse five. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. 
Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. All right? Um, Let me go ahead and read Revelation 17 because these passages are really similar. And so we're just going to read both of them. Then I'm going to kind of summarize both of them and talk about things we know and don't know from each one as well. Revelation 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who those with him are called and chosen and faithful. All right. Wow, when we get to Revelation, it's going to be quite the undertaking to teach through this book. There's a lot here. Thankfully, we're just looking at the book of life today, so we don't have to explain everything. But to help set the context for these two passages here, the context indicates a time of great deception where evil is viewed as right and God is viewed as evil. Right? I think hopefully we can all agree upon that. Whatever the beasts are and whatever this other stuff going on is and whenever this takes place, what we can agree, I think, upon this is, a, this is a time when, when evil is viewed as the right thing and God is viewed as evil. The people in heaven, the whole system, it says, is referred to and blasphemed against and, and people are turning to the beast and worshiping the beast and marveling the beast. The context also tells us that the deception will be far-reaching with many on earth worshiping this source of deception, Okay. When we get to Revelation, we'll talk about is this a real beast or is it an allegory for something else? We'll get into all that. But what we do know is that the source of this deception is worshipped by a whole lot of people. This activity would be would seem to be some of the greatest sins that man could engage in. Like if we want to list sins in order of seriousness, this has got to be close to the top. The reason I would say that is because it's very similar to what the Pharisees were in danger of doing with Jesus when he talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus was doing wondrous things. And the Pharisees had this information. What did the Pharisees say? They looked at him and said, you are Satan. You are a evil spirit. And Jesus is like, how do you get to the point where the Messiah comes and does messianic things and you label him as evil? He says, you're guilty or or in danger of being guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Right. Jesus says, this is this is serious territory you are treading on. You are taking what is God and labeling it as evil. This passage in Revelations goes one step further. Not only is God evil, but evil is now considered good 
by these worshipers of the beast. Okay, We don't have the Pharisees necessarily labeling evil as good. We do have them labeling God as evil. In Revelation, we've got both things right next to each other. Evil is good. God is evil. It's a serious offense. It's got to be worse than even what Jesus was talking about. It's important for us to note in the context here. Worship of this beast, and this is, again, my opinion on this, but worshiping this beast would seem to be a greater offense than the worship of a golden cow in the Old Testament. I hope we can agree upon that. Whatever is happening in the book of Revelation, the worshiping of that beast has got to be more serious than what happened in the Old Testament when Israel worshiped a golden calf. The golden calf wasn't talking. There wasn't any blaspheming going on. They weren't calling uh, God evil. They were just trying to represent God in an idolatry type form. They wanted to give their worship to something. Okay. And, and, and that's the context where, where we would maybe try to say that people can be blotted out of God's book of life. In the context of people worshiping a golden calf. So if that's possible, if the children of Israel were in danger of having their names blotted out because they were worshiping a calf, we would at least suspect that people that are worshiping a far greater beast with far greater deception and far greater blasphemies, those people too would be in danger of having their names blotted out as well. Okay? But when we look at this passage, there's some things that we do know and we don't know. What we do know, first of all, the people who worship and marvel. So 17, they talk about marveling. 13, they talk about worshiping. The people who worship and marvel at the beast are those whose names are not written in the book of life. Okay? Both passages are very clear. The people that are doing the worshiping are not people who have had their names blotted out. There are people who have not had their names written into the book. Okay? Secondly, those who have their names written in the book are presented as people who will remain faithful and not worship and marvel at the beast. Because if you go down in 17, they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. I, I read these two passages and I see two groups of people, people who have their names written and people who don't. And the people who don't worship the beast and the people that do have their names written are the people that are conquering with the lamb remember conquering where their names are never blotted out and they're people that stay faithful what you don't seem to have presented is the possibility of one crossing to the other you don't have people having their names blotted out and being put into the category now of people whose names aren't written in the book you have people whose names were never written from the foundation of the world and people whose names were one group worships and one group doesn't worship the beast one group's faithful one group isn't faithful the worship of the beast does not result in names being blotted out of the book nowhere do we see that instead they're presented as not being there you can't be blotted from the book for doing this activity right there, there's no indication here that if you worship the beast your name will be blotted out it says only people that worship the beast are people that don't have their names written so if your name was blotted out, it was blotted out prior to worshiping the beast, not because you worship the beast, right? The people that don't have their names in the book are the people that worship the beast, okay? And I think both of these passages suggest that names have been written in the book since before the foundation of the world. Now, I know there's 
Some ways to understand this passage is though these names have been written since the world began. And they've been kind of an ongoing uh, recording of people. But I think understanding these passages as being a passage that reveals our names are in the book before time begins, before the world began, is consistent with what we see in other parts of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So you read that passage in Ephesians, and you know there's some things that are going on at the, at the beginning of time. Things that he is, he is ensuring that will happen in the life of believers. They'll be holy and blameless, right? He's not going to save a group of people that stay in their sin. He's going to save a group of people that become like Jesus. And that's a promise that's given in Ephesians. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Another passage that would be consistent with the idea of our names being there at the beginning. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order they might be the firstborn among many brothers. This assurance that people become like Jesus, he's ensured that that will happen. A summary for this section here. While there is a great time of deception coming that will cause many to falsely worship a beast that presents himself as God, The deception will only be effective towards those who are not in the book of life and will simply provide a grand stage for all true believers to demonstrate their faith. That seems to be the picture here in Revelation, that you've got two groups of people, some who have their names written, some that don't. And the ones that don't worship the beast and the ones that do have their names come under great persecution and they're under attack. It says the beast has given authority over these people to attack the saints, to war against the saints. And it becomes this great stage of faith where the people whose names are written in the book of life are faithful to the end. They conquer. They're assured of conquering because the Holy Spirit's working in them. Unless we think that this passage is so mysterious because of all the, the lingo that's being used here, let's go to a more clear passage about a time that I think is at least very similar, if not the same time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. All right? It's always easier to interpret Scripture in the passages that are an easier genre of Scripture, right? you got apocalyptic language being used in Revelation, which brings its own set of challenges. Let's jump to 2 Thessalonians 2, where it's just a letter from a good old boy named Paul to his friends in Thessalonica. And he's just using clear language, right? 2 Thessalonians 2, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with, still with you, I told you about these things? Okay, so it seems to be eerily similar, if not the exact same time. You got, you got forces that are coming up, that are setting themselves against God, setting themselves up to be God. People are being deceived by it. You know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
That same picture, the lamb wins, Revelation 17 says. He conquers, right? Same thing here in 2 Thessalonians. He's going to come and he's going to kill it. He's going to bring it to nothing. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. For who? Those that are perishing. Those whose names aren't written in the book of life. Right? It doesn't say that this deception comes to people and then people start to perish because they believe it and then their names are blotted out. It says it comes for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. It's not people who are losing their salvation. It's people who are never saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Why? In order that all may can be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is a much clearer passage here. But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. The the danger here is for the people that aren't written in the book of life. They're going to be deceived. They're going to fall into it. But the people who have their names in the book of life are not going to worship the beast. There's not going to be some that had their names and get blotted out because they do it. It's only people who don't have their names written in the book of life that worship this beast. It's for the perishing, not the ones who are being saved, but the perishing. And the ones who are saved are the ones that conquer. It's a great stage for us to demonstrate our faith. This passage reveals to us. All right, we're almost done. Um, Revelation 20, 12 through 15. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's what we referenced earlier. To think that there's only one book is to mistakenly understand this passage. There are other books. And so that's why I can at least suggest the possibility of there being another book in in Exodus that that John MacArthur references. This book of the living, perhaps. I'm not going to press upon that passage and say what book it could be. I'm just suggesting that, it, that the idea of blotting out may be in reference to a different book. And I told you the context of Exodus 32 was physical existence on the earth, which would be consistent with this book of the living being blotted out, no longer being alive on the earth. But we know there are other books that are open on the day of judgment. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If we skip to 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Some context here. First of all, the judgment is certain, and during that time, deeds will be brought to light. 
Judgment is certain, and during that time, deeds will be brought to light. Number two, all people will appear before God and be evaluated by books. That's the picture here in Revelation. Everybody's going to stand before God. All the dead are going to be brought back to life, and we're going to stand before God, and books are going to be opened, and the book of life will be opened, is what we're told. What are some things that we do know? First of all, there are other books in addition to the book of life that will be used on Judgment Day. That much is made clear to us. What we don't know is the specific names of these other books. All right, That's not revealed to us. We do know the content of these books, the deeds of mankind. And there are passages that talk about God writing down all of our days, right? That all of our days are recorded in a book. And he, and he knew them before we were born. We know the content of the books, the deeds of mankind. Something else we know. While man will be judged regarding his deeds, his eternity will be based on his name being present in the book of life. People with names found written in the book gain eternal life. Those without names written will perish. So books are open and the book of life. People are judged by the books that contain deeds and works in them. But ultimately, eternity is based on whether your name's in this book or not. And not everybody's name is in it, right? You've got books that have seemingly everybody's name with all that they've ever done in it. And then you've got a book of life where only some people are recorded. What we don't know. Will the books confirm the names of those in the book of life? Is that the purpose of them? Okay, so as a believer, when I stand before God and my actions are, are, are demonstrated through a book that's been written, there's also this book with the, the book of life where my name is written as a believer. And I think part of the purpose of these deeds being brought up is it confirms the final roster. The works demonstrate that no special treatment was given to the people that are on the book of life list. I think that's the purpose, is that everything's brought to light, nothing is hidden, everything is just. Let me give you a, a real-life example of this, okay? Tyson's gone through uh, soccer tryouts this week, okay? He's got a list of everyone who went through tryouts, and on that list, he's got people rated on how they performed different skills that they did, different drills that they did. He's got them rated, da, 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 da. all this stuff, list everything off. Then there's a final roster that's posted. And the final roster reflects what the roster of everybody has written down. These are the people that made the team. You go to the other list to see why they're on this list. Okay. So you've got these books that are opened, and then anybody whose name is not written in the book of life perishes. The names on the book of life are those that enter into eternity, enter into the city of God. Now, I'm suggesting the purpose here, okay? I'm suggesting that what happens here is confirmation as to why these names are in the book of life. And let me stress to you, it's not because these people did better things than the people whose names aren't written down. What I'm suggesting to you is that the people who are on the book of life their names aren't blotted out. It's their sins that are blotted out. Their transgressions are blotted out, and they do no longer stand when God and us are interacting with each other. He has blotted out their transgressions. So we can talk all we want to about names being blotted out or not being blotted out. What is very clear in Scripture is that when we confess our sins, our sins are blotted out. 
And it's Christ's righteousness that stands in place. And when that book of life is opened, I'm not on the roster because of anything that I did. Right? I don't get to rejoice in any ministry accomplishment here. I'm rejoicing because my name is already written there. That's what Jesus says. My foundation for rejoicing is my name is written there, not any activity that I'm doing here to earn God's favor. For a believer, will this be the opportunity to show that our sins have been blotted out rather than our names? Psalm 51.1 and 51.9, David talks about uh, blotting out my transgressions, Lord, crying out to God and asking that, that his sins be blotted out. In Isaiah chapter 43, God tells us that he does do this. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God suggests the possibility of names being blotted in Exodus 32. We don't have anywhere recorded in Scripture where he actually has done it. We do have record of him blotting sins out. That is for sure. He says, I have done this. And then Acts chapter 3, verse 19 Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. I would suggest even, too, that maybe Hebrews 11 is a type of the things that will be read about believers on that day. You read through the Hebrews Hall of Faith and you hear about Abraham's faith. Remember how we talk about in the New Testament? We talk about Abraham's sins when we're reading through Genesis. You don't get a whole lot of conversation about Abraham's sins in the New Testament, right? Romans, it's all about his faith. It's all about how he didn't waver in his faith. It's all about how he conquered. It's all about how all these people in Hebrews conquered. It may be that that's kind of a glimpse of what that's going to look like when the books are open and Adam is before God and God's only talking about the things that he did through me and my faith. And when he gets to time to read about sins, there's no sins to read about because they've been blotted out. That's why I'm on the book of life, because my sins have been blotted out, not because my deeds are better than somebody else's, it's because I don't have any more sins there to condemn me. And my name is written in the book of life. And I can rejoice over that now because my sins have been blotted out. Um, those with names in the book will enter the city of God, Revelation 21 tells us. And if my name is written in the book of life, it means I do not do the things that would keep me out of it. Because in Revelation 21, it says nothing detestable comes in. Only those with their names written in the book of life. Right? It distinguishes between people that would send themselves sin, not send, that would send themselves out of the city of God. It says, no one, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life come into the city of God. Those are some of the, the key passages on the book of life. I want to give you some concluding thoughts as we wrap everything up. Oh, first, here's a summary. The believer will be validated on the day of judgment when he stands before God and is revealed to be saved by faith. 
which will be confirmed by his name being found written in God's book of life. Okay, some concluding thoughts. First of all, the encouragement to see these passages as a nod to our eternal security is not a license to be cavalier with our faith. See, that's, that's, the, that's the danger with the doctrine of eternal security and why it comes under attack a lot of times. Because the fear is that people will hear your name is written there and it can never change. Therefore, do whatever you want. And it is not a license to be cavalier with our faith. Eternal security does not allow one to do whatever they want. The very nature of being a Christian requires that one conquer by worshiping God and turning from detestable deeds, right? Being a Christian means you conquer. Being a Christian means you stop doing detestable deeds because your name is written in the book of life and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit and your sanctification is guaranteed and your glorification is guaranteed. So you don't get to be an individual who says, I am rejoicing that my name is in heaven and cannot be blotted out. Therefore, I will do whatever I want. To that individual, we would say, your name is not written in heaven, right? You don't get to be a detestable individual. You don't get to do whatever you want. You have to conquer. You have to persevere. You have to put aside the old man and put on the new. If you don't, your name isn't written there. It doesn't need to be blotted out. It's not written there. You don't get to be whatever you want to be as a Christian. If you're doing whatever you want, you aren't eternally secure. As a Christian, I no longer do the things that would send me to hell. I'm being changed. I'm being renewed. Number two, I'll admit, while some mystery may remain regarding names being blotted out. Okay, I know that the Exodus 32 passage, I don't have a problem with Revelation 3. I don't have a problem with it talking about names never being blotted out and that suggesting that some names will be. I don't think that that's being pictured there at all. And I'll share with you that in just a second. I do realize that God makes the statement, the one who sins against me, his name will be blotted out. I don't know what book's being talked about there. I don't know if it's talking about physical life or if it's talking about the book of life. It's not clear. So I'm admitting that there's some mystery there, and I'm admitting that I may be wrong in that area. We are ensured that salvation results in our sins being blotted out, though. That is for sure. Okay? There isn't mystery there. When we're saved, when our names are written, our sins are blotted out. If I'm wrong about this, and names can be blotted out, we don't know when they get blotted out, we don't know why they get blotted out, and we don't know who has their names blotted out. That's not clear if we're going to try to build a doctrine on names being blotted out. Okay? Last thing. Scripture as a whole, outside the passages regarding the book of life, uh, heavily or strongly encourage a doctrine of eternal security. Philippians 1.6. And this is why the book of life and what I, how I interpret these passages are interpreted in such a way because they mesh with what I see in the rest of the New Testament, which is abundantly clear in my opinion. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus starts things and finishes things. He's not like us, right? We all have projects that we started and we never finished. I don't see any allotment here for God to start something in somebody and then say, ah, you know what? That just didn't turn out the way I'd hoped. Blot him out. 
blot his name out. No, I don't see that. I don't see that being allowed when it says that God starts things and finishes things. Romans 8.30, God justifies and he glorifies. He doesn't, he doesn't stop in the salvation process. When he starts it, he finishes it. John 6.39, God doesn't lose anybody. Jesus doesn't lose those that have been given to him. John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What's comforting to me is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. All this talk about conquering and enduring. Praise God, it's not based on our ability. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's Paul praying for? He's praying that these people would conquer. He's praying that they'll stay uh, unstained from the world, that they won't produce detestable deeds, that they won't worship the beast. He says, may the God of peace do these things, sanctify you, make your spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. And then the bit of encouragement that's so important is verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. All right, that's the hope and encouragement, is that God starts it and he finishes it. That it's not going to not come to completion. First um, John 2, 9, 19. Well, what do we do with all these people that claim to be Christians and then stop being Christians? Why can't we say that their names were blotted out? First John 2, 19. I think informs us that any perceived dropouts were just never true believers. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us see john helps us understand when somebody doesn't conquer and doesn't make it to the end they weren't ever really part of us because god is faithful he calls he'll surely do it if he didn't do it then he never started it in them that it was a man motivated response that falls off in the end and it shows that they were never really part of us Going back to Revelation 3, 5, can it really be a promise? Can we really find hope and encouragement that our names will never be blotted out if it's not possible? If that threat doesn't exist. So it can be argued that, well, Revelation 3, 5 says if you conquer, your name won't be blotted out. There's a threat there as well. If you don't conquer, your name will be blotted out. And if that threat's not there, then really, what's the encouragement there? Why, why, why would the encouragement be there if you couldn't possibly have your name blotted out? The fearful prospect that God might change his mind exists for a lot of people, right? Even though scripture says that that's, that that's not the case, that God doesn't change his mind about us, I think we've all gone through times and experiences and done things where the fearful prospect in our mind is, maybe I'm the exception. Maybe God stops loving me because of this. Maybe God forsakes me and abandons me because this was a big one. I really dropped the ball here. I really lacked faith here. I think the encouragement is for the people who would question if their names would be blotted out. Can I be such a big screw up 
and God forsake me and God blot me out. And I think the hope and the promise here is that it's not about individual days. It's about the conquering of the life. It's about the the start and the finish. And there's going to be hiccups and bumps along the way. And to protect us from despairing in our 30s and 40s and 50s when, when we drop the ball. Some big opportunity to demonstrate faith. And we're like Abraham and we say, she's my sister, not my wife. You know, big chance to be faithful guy. And we drop the ball. I think the hope here is don't go back to your tent and think that your name's getting blotted out. You're going to conquer. God started the work. He's going to finish it. And just like Abraham is described in the New Testament as one who never wavered in our faith, we look back and we say, I see all kinds of wavering. What's most true about him in the New Testament, he never wavered in his faith. His sins are blotted out. I think the hope, the promise, the reason that passage is there is so that we don't get bogged down in our own individual sins. I need not fear individual sins that would make me question if I'm still a Christian. My continued endurance will show it. The responsibility on us, if you conquer, God will not erase your name. The hope is that if your name is written down, you will conquer. It's real similar to Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is the one who's going to work it out in you. It's like, what? You've got responsibility. God's got a promise attached to it. You do it. God's going to do it. You conquer. You're going to conquer. God's going to do it. Fight we must and fight we will is really what flows out of these passages. We have to conquer. We have to persevere. And we will. And then the, the place where we just have to rest is with Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So I wanted to stress to you the things that I believe are revealed in these passages and also highlight the things that we don't know for sure. But I think there's enough here, enough that we do know, that Jesus says we can rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Let me uh, read to you a poem that John Piper wrote about the book of life in closing. Before the night he was betrayed, the Lord of glory died. Indeed, before the world was made, the Lamb was crucified. Before the sin, the spear, the lash, eternal was the flood. God put his inkwell at the gash and filled it with his blood. Then with his crimson crimson ink and quill, a holy world compiled and wrote his kind and costly will, the name of every child. Then finally, with tears, he took a blade to foreordain and graved the title of the book, The Lamb. The life, the lamb, the slain. And if your name is written there, though you may be the least, you will not fall to any snare nor bow before the beast. You will not marvel when it roars, nor any feet admire, nor drink the poison that it pours, nor taste the lake of fire. But you will live forevermore where dusk and dawn are done. The lamb will be the moon and soar around an endless sun. And if, lamb-like, you taste his shame and finish life abased, remember, written one, your name will never be erased. And so you ask, how may I know my name is in the book? May I beseech my God to show the page where I may look? No, none may peer within by prayer, nor if he wait or strive. You know your name is written there because you are alive. Rejoice, my child, all heaven sings when you make demons fall, and yet to be inscribed with kings in heaven surpasses all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have chosen very specifically to reveal things to us. And for reasons we don't understand, you have kept certain things veiled from us. But God, we are thankful that there is enough here in this passage 
in these various passages that we've looked at this morning to give us cause to rejoice. Father, we are thankful that our salvation is not based on our efforts alone. That you have called us to be certain things and to do certain things, to conquer and to remain faithful. And in calling us to do those things, you have ensured us the very power needed to accomplish them. Father, we are thankful this morning that while there may still be some unanswered questions about names being blotted out, we have been assured that our sins are blotted out. That as believers, you have cleansed us. And when we stand before you, it's our name that will stand and not our sinful deeds. It's our name that's recorded in the book of life and not the long list of wrongs against you. Father, we're thankful that the detestable deeds and the false worship that was such a characteristic of our life before you, that those things are being radically changed and transformed. And Father, I pray for those that you are actively working in, that we would be encouraged, that we would have hope knowing that we will conquer to the end, that we will not fall astray and worship any deception that comes our way. Father, I pray for those that are seemingly being cavalier with their faith right now, that they are claiming a doctrine of eternal security and giving themselves license to do sinful things that are detestable to you. Father, I pray that you would wake them up to realize that they have no claim upon eternal security right now. That to have your name written in the book of life is to be an individual who is conquering temptation and tribulation. Father, I pray that if need be in this church that you would call people to repentance and faith who have been wrongly informed up to this point in their life. Father, I pray that you would strengthen those who are true believers that maybe need to repent of sin in their life, that they too would come back as you've promised they would. They would be renewed, realizing that for the one who conquers, they will be clothed in white garments and their names will never be blotted out. God, we praise you and thank you for your word this morning. I pray that it would be the means of rejoicing that Jesus wants it to be for us. Pray that as we leave here today, whatever we face this week, whatever successes that we experience, that nothing will detract from our ability to rejoice that our names are written in heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.